Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Brandon Lyons, a Paralympic hopeful in cycling. After he was paralyzed from the chest down while on vacation, Brandon found a new purpose in pursuing his Paralympic dream. He's on track to qualify for his first Paralympic Games in Tokyo. Thank you so much for joining. You have a truly remarkable story and just immense obstacles that you have had to persevere through to get to where you are today. And perhaps what I find even more incredible than in your story is your positive attitude despite it all. And I want to give the audience just a little bit more context uh, and background because I think every Paralympian finds their way to the sport uh, in a very unique way. But for you, it was somewhat of a surreal, crazy moment where your life just flipped on its head overnight. I've heard you share this story before, and I'd love for you to give the audience just a little bit of perspective uh, into that one day in 2014. I believe you were on vacation, and your life was on a certain very different trajectory. And all of a sudden, that changed in minutes. Could you walk us through that day? Sure. Yeah. So it was back uh, in May of 2014. Um, at that time, I had just graduated college from Penn State in 2012 and had started a career with Ernst & Young down in the Washington, D.C. area. So I was kind of taking my professional life that way. And my career was, you know, going well. And uh, just uh, another random weekend of celebrating the Memorial Day uh, holiday. Uh, I went down to Ocean City, Maryland uh, with a few friends and some coworkers from Ernst & Young. And uh, as, as you mentioned, you know, my, my life changed just within a matter of seconds. So uh, I had mistakenly dove into shallow water and, and broke my T5 and T6 vertebrae. So right around your sternum area, uh, both of those vertebrae had burst. And that's what caused, um, you know, ultimately the paralysis of my spinal cord injury. So at that time, you know, I was, I was 24 years old. I had just graduated college. I, my career was going in the right direction. And, you know, there I was motionless, um, you know, fearful of what was going to happen, you know, with the rest of my life only being 24 years old. So I was then airlifted out of uh, the, the neighboring parking lot to, to where we were um, to, to get to, um, you know, really get into immediate surgery, um, you know, at the shock trauma center in Baltimore. And unfortunately, uh, just a kind of a crazy part of the whole story was the, the helicopter that was taking me from Ocean City, Maryland, to to get the surgery done, didn't have enough fuel to get to the hospital. So they had to refuel stop at a smaller neighboring hospital. That obviously delayed the entire process. And with a spinal cord injury, it's it's critical to get to the hospital and get the surgery done as quickly as possible following the injury um, for any you know better chance or or an, an improvement in your recovery. Uh, so unfortunately, I didn't make it to the hospital for the surgery until late that night, and it was a weekend, uh, so they didn't have their their specialized crew there. So my surgery got delayed until uh, the following day, where then I went in for around a six-hour surgery where they, they stabilized my spine um, with two metal rods and eight screws. And, you know, it was, it was really coming out of that where, you know, I woke up and, and really fully grasped, you know, what was happening. My family was there. My friends were there. Um, you know, coworkers were surrounding me, and I, I, I ultimately saw you know this the severity of the injury. But still, you know, being an athlete and being young and maybe maybe naive of you know this was just another injury. I re- really early on in in, in my recovery, um, you know, while I was in the hospital, I, I really treated it as another injury of almost like a broken leg. You know, if you give me a few weeks to a few months, I'm going to be back up on my feet again. I didn't didn't fully grasp or, or, or maybe didn't accept, um, you know, what was, what was truly happening and what the impact was going to be on my life. Uh, so for the next you know month, I was, uh, you know, in the, in the hospital, really just trying to regain my independence back and really learning what this, this new normal was, um, you know, of, of living life in a wheelchair and trying to overcome this, you know, huge, huge piece of adversity. Um, you know, that, had, that had just impacted me. So that next month I had spent, you know, all of my time in rehab and then was discharged, um, you know, back to my parents' house. So that was a, a huge, uh, shift and, uh, a change to my life of being 24 years old and now going back to live with your parents as, as you were independent. So, um, that was probably one of the biggest challenges early on was 
trying to gain that sense of independence back and trying to navigate this, this new world of uncertainty, um, you know, as really, really as best I could. And, you know, one of the ways I, you know, found and, you know, that, that sense of normalcy, um, you know, was through sport. And so early on, while I was in rehab and recovering, uh, I was introduced to a hand cycle. So, you know, the idea of what, how someone who's paralyzed would be able to ride a bike again. So it was something that, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, sparked a little bit of an interest. Um, so my family and friends had put together a fundraiser for me coming out of the hospital that I would have my own hand cycle, just a way to get active again. And, um, you know, to, to really get that sense of independence, but I, I really treated it early on as just a way to, you know, build up strength and kind of go through rehab and recovery still. So I was introduced to the hand cycle very early on. Uh, I think I wrote it maybe the first week that I was out of the hospital, uh, still brand new to the injury. And and I tell everyone that first time I took the bike out, it was, it was nearly impossible. I could barely get out of the driveway. Um, so it was, it was interesting just learning, you know, how my body was, you know, recovering, how I was coping with everything mentally. Um, but sport played a huge piece of, you know, me getting back into the world and continuing all of life early on. There's so much that I want to unpack there. Wow. I guess before we move forward, because I think this event in your life was really seminal into shaping this incredible athlete and competitor you are today. But those 12 to 24 hours between the moment of your accident to when you actually had surgery, how much of that time were you conscious and what was going through your mind? I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in a helicopter and realize that it didn't have enough fuel to get where you're going. And then the bad luck of it being a weekend, these events seem to have kept stacking up against you. And I'd love to know how you interpreted them in the moment. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting because like when I look back at, you know, what had happened, there's a lot of things that I'm actually very fortunate for. Um, one, I, I dove into shallow water. So I, I landed on my head. I was um, on about a 10 foot pier uh, and I dove into about three feet of water. I, I didn't know how deep the water was. Boats were floating. So it was just the first time that I jumped in the water and kind of just a, a sense of bad luck. Um, I'm 6'3". So Put, put it that way, I, could, I was essentially sitting in the water whenever I came up, um, but was was very fortunate enough that I didn't break my neck since I dove into the water on my head. Uh, I could have easily became a quadriplegic and, you know, not had not had my arm. So, but early on, you know, when, when I dove in um, and, and, and had that immediate impact, I was fully aware and fully conscious, uh, which, which was surprising. I thought I would have knocked myself out or, you know, had been unconscious early on, but I can remember everything so vividly. And it's, it's interesting too, because at that time there wasn't really a sense of panic. It was more of this like sense of tranquility that came over and it was very calming, um, which, which was, which was bizarre. I don't know if that's just the way that I reacted to the situation. Um, but I just looked at my friends and told them, you know, that I needed help and I needed them to pull me out of the water as, as quickly as possible. Um, but at, at that time, you know, my friends and, you know, coworkers just thought I was joking. Um, but I was, I was completely serious and, and said, you know, I couldn't move anything below my chest. Um, so I, I, I need you to be able to pull me out. So I was still completely conscious throughout that entire process. I remember getting loaded into the helicopter um, and it, it really sunk in. I tell a lot of people this was we were in the helicopter and the dispatcher was on, um, you know, the dispatcher was on the phone with my mom and it was on speakerphone. So I could hear my mom in the background. And, you know, I was, I was communicating to her as well, probably a little bit more frantically than, than the dispatcher. And, you know, that's the moment when I was telling her that I was paralyzed is when it was really sinking in. Like, okay, I'm, I, I think I did something pretty bad here. Uh, and you know, something that's going to, gonna really have an impact um and you know at that time my mom and my stepdad who were on the phone you know they didn't want to believe it they they couldn't believe it because you know they weren't around to see me they they couldn't diagnose anything um so they, i don't think they were ready to accept it either uh but i think that was the moment when i really truly set in um a little bit deeper but was completely conscious the entire helicopter ride it wasn't until that we uh landed at the you know, smaller hospital in Salisbury, Maryland to refuel was whenever they retook vitals and then started pumping me up with, you know, pain medication and things like that. And that's when the next morning I, I came to, it was, it was coming out of the surgery is whenever I kind of realized everything and found out that 
they couldn't do the surgery immediately whenever you got there and, and kind of all those things. So it was, I was in a helicopter, had that next moment of, you know, half a day or so that I don't remember. And then it was waking up to being surrounded by, you know, family, fr- <clears throat> family, friends, and coworkers. So it was just like, that's, I think when it really sunk in was, you know, you wake up and then all of your loved ones are there. And how do you make sense of what happened in order to go through a process of acceptance and to move forward that this is this is your new life and life is maybe not what happens to you, but how you react to what happens to you. I'm just really, I guess, honing in on this time because I think the person that you are today and the actions that you you took and your attitude, uh, your incredible positive attitude is, is so inspiring for so many that would that hear your story and, and would feel, you know, perhaps defeated about and feel lost and not know how to respond. And so I think so many people could be really helped by understanding how you were able to accept this, move on and move on with such strength. Yeah, for me, I, I don't think I really changed early on. I was always an independent person growing up. So that was the biggest challenge for me was losing that sense of independence and after having to you know, depend on people and needing help and support with really everything that I was going through on a daily basis. I mean, getting changed and, you know, my, my entire life, it was things that a lot of people take for granted. You know, they were, they were essentially taken away from me and I needed help doing these just very easy tasks. Um, so that, that was challenging early on, but in order to accept it, I mean, I would, kind of relate back to this one moment when it was probably within the first you know week or so that I was in rehab and um, I had met a young lady down in the rec room who went through a very similar situation that I did she dove into shallow water and she broke her neck so she was in this complete um, you know electric wheelchair she was getting around by you know just puffing on a straw so she had no she had no use of her arms no use of her upper body I mean she was completely immobile and then dependent on on everyone to, to do anything. And that was a real, you know, perspective change for me. And, and really where I started to look at, you know, my situation of, we were very close in age. We had a very similar accident. I could have easily ended up like her, right? So it was early on, I always learned, and it was being surrounded by a lot of people who went through some type of trauma that, you know, you, I, I quickly learned that, you know, everyone kind of looks at just that next person and they have just a little bit more than you do. And you, you just want to grasp on and that's all you want. You don't want more than that person, but you just, you look to that next person and you just, you just wish, you know, that, that you had that. And, and, and I'm sure that she did. And I'm sure that, you know, I look at other people and I wish that I just had a little bit more. So um, I, I really took for, took for granted early on, you know, what I did have, but it was, it was just that mindset change of, and I should be very fortunate for what I have. A, I'm still here. And then B, I'm completely independent now. I didn't know it at that time. But when I look back at everything, um, it was really about trying to gain that independence and move forward with my life because I was just, I was so young. I was 24 years old. I was doing well and at work. And um, I wanted to continue to have success in life and, and have a fulfilling life. So I just know that I needed to do everything I possibly could to try to replicate or, you know, gain that sense of, of normalcy again. I guess that, that reminds me of a quote of yours that I, I came across, that you don't have time to waste on any negative thoughts. I think everyone aspires to that, but somehow the negative thoughts can just creep in and, and take you just kind of really off course. And do you think that mindset, would you attribute that outlook as a byproduct of the values um, that you grew up with with your family? Um, or, or where did that come from? Yeah, I think it came from my family. Uh, I was essentially raised from my mom. You know, my parents were divorced early on. So I saw, you know, all the sacrifices that she took on early on. Um, and, then, and then also through my dad, I'm just kind of navigating back and forth. But I think that they instilled really just this sense of, you know, hard work. You were going to, you know, that there were no excuses. You know, I were, was setting goals early on. And I remember I was 15 years, I just turned 15. And I was legally able to get a job and my mom said, you're going to get a job. So I got a job. I next goal was I wanted to have a car at 16. Well, you need to be able to pay for the car. So save your money from your job. You're going to buy a car. You're going to get yourself to college. You're going to pay yourself through college. So there were all of these steps that they were kind of, you know, 
setting me up for early early success. So I may have, you know, I think matured uh, earlier than, you know, maybe some others at that time, which, you know, helped me kind of go through this transition. I think if it was, if I was younger, it would have been a little bit more difficult. Um, but, you know, I, I, again, it was still, still challenging because at, at 24, you know, I had this, you know, sense of, you know, social life and, you know, other goals that I wanted to accomplish that my mindset did change a little bit, but I think it was truly that, you know, foundational, you know, principles that, you know, that my family helped um, is, is, is really what helped me with that mindset to continue to move forward because following the, you know, following the injury, it, it truly was, it was like, I needed to get back to work. So I went back to work, you know, four or five months after I was hurt, um, you know, full-time at Ernst & Young. And then I wanted to continue just to set these different goals. So I was very goal oriented and that's the way that I was going to measure my success and to, to prove to myself that I wasn't going to let this injury, you know, hold me back or have, have, have any setbacks. I think it's so interesting where goals come along in our life and how they bring us, um, you know, into subsequent chapters. Um, I think that's a big thing for retiring Olympians and Paralympians is losing that goal of having something to train for and, and feeling a little bit lost. You know, as, as a Paralympic hopeful, you know, you're not on the other side of that yet. And it seems like you're going to have no problem finding and setting goals. Just how important was it, you know, to have that goal? And then how did, you know, from the spring of 2014 to accepting your new life and rehabilitation, how long did it take you to set the goal of becoming a, a Paralympic hopeful? Yeah, for, it, it kind of just, uh, it, it's weird. Like my story, it was almost like every couple of years or really early on, I was like every year I made a decision that that had a huge impact on my life. And then if I didn't make that decision or, or take that risk, well, then why didn't happen, right? So it was like I did X and then Y happened and these things started just to kind of fall in place. Um, so early on coming out of you know, rehab from, from the hospital within that first month. I, I tell everyone that it, it was funny that, you know, I was an athlete my whole entire life growing up and I was getting ready to run my first marathon. And that's something that I wanted to accomplish and check off my bucket list. And then the injury happened and, you know, that wasn't going to happen again. Right. And so it was, it was tough that being an athlete and then this, this life altering event happens. And I remember friends, you know, coming into the hospital and saying, Oh, you're going to go to the Paralympics. And this was within like the first month. And I immediately looked at him and I said, you're damn right. Right. So like, I, I, I immediately said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to the Paralympics too. Being, being ignorant and being naive of, I didn't really know what the Paralympics were. Right. I just understood that it was for, you know, um, you know, athletes with a disability to compete on a stage. I didn't know how competitive it was or how difficult the the process and the journey was at that stage, right? Because I just wasn't aware of it. But um, it, it never truly was a was a goal early on. And I really wouldn't say it wasn't a goal for the first three years. Um, I had moved out to San Diego to go through the stem cell clinical trial, which took about a year and a half of uh, from 2015 up until you know the, at the end of 2016, leading into 2017 is where I lived in San Diego and I was truly focused on how am I going to walk again? I wanted to regain as much as I possibly could coming out of this injury. I wasn't, uh, you know, focused on sport or, or even competing in sport. Uh, and it, it kind of just found me was coming out of this, this, um, you know, stem cell clinical trial and going through rehab on a daily basis. Uh, I went through a specialized program where wasn't covered by insurance. So I was paying out of pocket and essentially, all the money that I was making from Ernst & Young was covering me to live in San Diego and then for me to go to rehab. So it, 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 I gave myself one full year of just knowing, probably going to go into debt for this, but I, I would regret it if I didn't try to, you know, give everything I had to, to be able to walk again and gain that, you know, type of independence that way. So um, gave it a full year and I went back home for Thanksgiving that year and, and had a discussion with my family and just told them that, you know, Fin you know, financially, it just doesn't make sense for me to continue on this path. I'm not seeing the progress. It's not worth the, you know, the money that I'm putting into it. Um, and I, I don't want to continue just to, to kind of waste away my waste away my time of just only rehabbing and working. That's really all I was doing. 
Um, and I said, I wanted to, you know, enjoy living in San Diego. So I brought my hand cycle from San Diego out to, uh, or, uh, from Pennsylvania out to San Diego, uh, coming out of Thanksgiving. And it was really that, that first time I took the bike out, um, you know, first time really riding independently, uh, you know, in, at, at the end of 2016 is where I met, um, a prior Ironman champion who, uh, also had a very similar accident to myself. Um, uh, so his name was David Bailey. He had, you know, won multiple Ironmans and, uh, you know, was, was riding a hand cycle, had a very similar injury to me and, you know, really, really opened up his arms and, and, you know, showed me, really introduced me to the sport. Um, so I, I just, just started riding with him and training with him and, and still early on had no ideas of competing, uh, from like an elite standpoint. It was really just, this is an opportunity to, to ride the coast of California and to be able to get outside and, and really experience freedom on the bike. Uh, so I did that for the first month and started to get a little bit faster and a little bit faster. And uh, it wasn't until December of 2016 where I saw a posting on Facebook that um, uh, Team USA Paralympic Cycling was looking uh, to um, bring in new residents to the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. So they were holding an application process and the team had just uh, finished up at Rio in 2016. So we had a good handful um, of athletes retire. So we had a pretty high turnover and they were looking for a new developmental pipeline. So I had just reached out at that time. I had never raced a bike, had never really done much. I was really riding for, for two months and just decided, hey, I'm just going to give it a shot. Right. So I just reached out to them, applied and kind of wrote down this business case to them saying, you know, if you give me a chance, I'm going to prove to you that your that your system can work, and you can take a guy from really not having any experience. I was an athlete, so I was training. I was in the gym a lot, he- heading up to that. So, um, but I was truly a project. But if you gave me four years until the next games, I'm going to prove to you that I can make it. So, um, they were at least interested. So I received an email from them, you know, pretty quickly after uh, having them invite me out um, for a two week tryout. So. Went up to the training center in Colorado Springs in March of 2017 and uh, spent, you know, two weeks living at the training center, training, you know, alongside Paralympians, Olympians, and going through a lot of different testing and, and all sorts of things. And uh, I think they just saw a guy that didn't quit and was really interested. And they, they, they saw enough potential that I left that two-week tryout with an opportunity to then move in. Um, to the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center and then become the first hand cyclist that was a full-time resident at the center. Wow, that's such a cool story. For people that aren't as familiar, can you describe a little bit what hand cycling looks like and um, and what a typical day of training looks like for you? Sure. Yeah, so the hand cycle, it's essentially, it's a recumbent bike. So uh, the, the rider's laying down flat on their back and then it's it's three wheels. So there's two wheels in the back, one wheel on the front. The front wheel is the drive wheel. So it's essentially the rear wheel of a regular bike. So all of the gearing um, is all on the front wheel. And it's it's essentially in between your two legs. So your 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 feet kind of straddle the front wheel um, within these footrests that are that are essentially on the frame. One of the other differences to the bike itself is the cranks are just regular bike cranks and they, you pedal, uh, you know, together instead of simultaneously like a regular bike. And those cranks are just a little bit above your chest. So, um, you're continually just to kind of move, do that motion that you would with your legs, but with your arms. So a lot of it is just upper body work. Um, it's extremely aerodynamic. So this, the speeds that I've seen on the bike are, incredible going down a hill i can out roll any regular bike um the fastest i've ever gone is 56 miles an hour going on a on a flat i can keep up or go faster than regular bikes um and then the biggest challenge for us is any type of climb it's just the power to weight ratio we're not putting out as the same amount of watts or, or power that you know someone can with their legs so a little bit slower there but uh, it's been it's been really exciting to see the the advancements and the really just the progress in the sport since I've joined. Uh, it's it's been super exciting. Um, but my, my typical day is um, I also work full time jobs. So it's a little bit different, but um, I'm I'm typically up at four thirty in the morning. Uh, I have a new puppy, so I'm trying to balance getting her ready, and then uh, she essentially wakes me up and tells me that I'm ready to go. But 
Um, I, I do all my training before work, at least my first session. So I'm, I'm up at 4.30 and I'll usually get, um, you know, anywhere from a one to three hour ride in, depending on what my coach has me, uh, you know, doing for that day on the bike. Uh, right now, being in Florida, I do a lot of my riding outside, just weather permitting. So that was one of the good uh, benefits of, of moving down here. If not, if I was in Colorado, I'd be getting prepared to do a lot of indoor training, which can be a little bit monotonous and you know not as not, not as not as fun as being outside. But uh, first training session would be in the morning. Then I go to work for you know four or five hours leading up to lunch, whereas then where I get my second training session in, um, which I'm doing either strength and conditioning um, or any type of just you know mobility type work with my shoulders or if my coach has me do just like a an easy spin down ride which may be 30 minutes or so but um now being at my house i have a tonal gym so it's really neat piece of equipment that it's a home gym that's attached to the wall and essentially what it has is um smart weight so it's a cable uh system that allows you to then control the weight with the handles or with any attachment that you have and then it's tracking all of your weight every single rep, every single set that you're doing. And then my coach at the Olympic and Paralympic training center is actually linked up to my tonal account. So he can track me from Colorado with all the, you know, weights in the programs that I'm doing now. But typical, typical week is, uh, anywhere from, you know, 15 to 20 hours on the bike. A lot of my longer rides are on the weekend. So typically four to five hours on a Saturday and a Sunday, uh, on the bike. And then I'm in the gym, um, three days a week. And what's that like balancing a full-time job with, you know, training to make the Paralympic team? Yeah, it's, it's been tough. So when I moved to the training center in 2017, um, I actually uh, signed a flexible work arrangement for them to drop down to be part-time. So I was working around 24 hours a week. And at that time, when I had this opportunity to, to move into the training center, I honestly thought that I was going to have to leave Ernst & Young just because I was so new to the sport and I wanted to really invest everything that I possibly could. Um, you know, I, I was, I was ready to leave, but I had those discussions with Ernst and Young and they were very keen and, you know, supporting my goals and supporting this journey. They, they helped me through the, through the injury. They didn't want to see me go and they wanted to help me support me through this next part as we, you know, try to push to Tokyo. So for the first uh, three years, I was working, you know, 24 hours a week in training um, and that was, that was still difficult, but it was, it was very manageable. I was able to do that pretty, pretty easily. And I'm very routine oriented. So once I had my routine, especially being at the training center with everything there and in, in one place, it was, it was easy to fall into a routine. Um, but then COVID happened and, uh, that essentially pushed me out of the training center. Um, really on my own, I was looking for just that a new place that I could continue to train and train effectively. Um, but in order to, to do that, I was going to have to move and purchase a home. And in order to do that, I was going to have to go back to full time. So um, I had discussions with my employer again, and they were eager and waiting for me to come back full time. So they were excited about, about me coming back full time. So uh, I came back to them full time in April of this year, so April of 2020. And the first few months, it was it was tough because I was still at the training center for April and May, um, and I was you know living in this small dorm. I was training in the small dorm, working, sleeping, eating, all in the same room as all of the restrictions that were put on. Um, and then obviously the big you know move happened, which made it obviously difficult and had stresses on its own. So it wasn't really until the past you know, really a few months that I started to get back into that routine. So um, my my team is extremely supportive of, you know, knowing that I have that block in the middle of the day that I'm able to get out my second workout. Um, it helps that I'm up early so I can get one done before I go to work. But that, that middle of the day block really helps me. It's, it's really just a refresher because I've, you know, been working for, you know, four or five hours and now I can get away and not think about work completely unplug go to the sport and that that's almost like it refreshes and you know wakes me up again so that I can finish out the rest of the day. Speaking of how COVID has, you know, up upended many athletes uh, normal training routines, uh you've had to leave the the training center and you know I guess some sports, you know, they had no pool to train in. At least, you know, you have 
you have your bike and you can do that outside. What's been the biggest uh, difference in your in your day to day training? And what did it feel like when you heard that the the games were going to be postponed? And um, like, did you have a kind of a support group to talk to? Did you kind of talk to your coach? Did it train? Did it change when you were planning to peak? Uh, there's so many things that kind of go into being your best at a certain day and point in time. So how, how did you uh, respond to all those unforeseen changes? Yes, yeah, so to, to your first question, I am very fortunate enough that my, in my sport, I can either train outside or I can train indoors um, on, a, on, a, on a bike trainer anywhere. So I don't really have an excuse not to train. The, the biggest piece that was taken away from me was being able to go into the gym. So um, I was working directly with Sam Gardner, one of the coaches at the training center. We were, felt like we were progressing. And um, for, to have that taken away as, as well as you know the recovery center, so getting weekly massages and going down and using you know, Normatex and cold plunges, all of those types of modalities – that was the biggest challenge early on of just, you know, again, just interrupting my routine. Um, but from a training aspect, I had, I had no excuses and I just continued to train as, as normal. Uh, but to, to your next point around, you know, the uncertainty early on, that was the biggest challenge, I think, for myself. And I think for really everyone that I saw at the training center was, you know, no one knew what was going to happen with the games. We were getting pretty close to, especially within cycling, we hadn't uh, named anyone to the team yet. So we were going to have our trials event that was going to be in the end of June. And we didn't even race yet for that year. So this was March at the time. And our first race was a month away in April. Uh, and then we would start to you know, head into our international circuit. So really 2020, we had no races to, to go off of. We had just come back from a training camp. Everyone was feeling really good. Um, and it was really that uncertainty piece of, okay, what's going to happen? You know, we heard rumblings, oh, the games are going to continue to go on. And we were getting emails from, you know, leadership and people high up in the USOPC saying, you know, continue to train as if the games are going to happen. So that was the mindset that I took. And I was just going to continue to do that. It wasn't until, you know, more restrictions were happening at the training center. And then it, it really sunk in. It was whenever Canada, I think, announced that they were going to pull back and not send any athletes. And once that happened, then I essentially, you know, knew the writing was on the wall and it was just a matter of time. Um, but the, the biggest challenge was just that uncertainty piece early on. And it was tough being at the training center with all of these, you know, uncertain times and really the athletes not knowing, staff not knowing. So they didn't know what to tell any of the, any of the residents. And I remember, I mean, obviously, as you know, you're, you're in a room with, you're in a, you know, building with hundreds of hundreds of people one rumor gets out and then it spreads like wildfire and i remember the first it's one of like the first days that it was there that you know some rumor had happened that the training center is closing down the next day they're going to lock all the doors you're not going to get any of your equipment or any of your you know belongings that are in any other room um you have to go get them out by tonight and this was at like 9 p.m I remember myself and other athletes were heading down into the bike room. We were stuffing our cars with our bikes and all of our equipment just so we could continue to train in case they truly did lock all the doors because they were going to have some restriction from the state. So um, we, we did all that. Fortunately enough, the next morning we woke up and it was not real. And uh, we, we still had a few days that they were allowing us to go in and clean out some of the rooms to, to get all of our belongings. Um, but I, I stayed at the training center. I was one of the, one of the last ones from my sport um, to, to stay there the longest. When we, when they first announced, um, you know, canceling the games, the the training center is typically around you know a couple hundred athletes that are there on any given day, and we went down to about like thirty five athletes within that first week, and then whenever I left, there were around fifteen athletes. So I mean, it was it was almost like a ghost town. There was no one there, and it was tough to see as, you know, they were laying off some people and, um, you know, all sorts of things that, that came with the impact of COVID. But, um, you know, I had made the decision to, to move so I could continue to train and, and still just keep that mindset of, you know, there is one goal and it's to make it to Tokyo and it's, it's going to happen next year. And I was very optimistic that it was going to happen next year. Um, and I, I just had that mindset change early on to try to look at it from a, from a positive lens and say, okay, I'm still 
technically new in this sport. So you're giving me one more full year to train um, to get even stronger, to get even faster and to improve my performance and to improve my, my chance of making the game. So um, I look at it that way of, you know, being fortunate that the game's pushed out, but um, to, to your other point, it's, it's tough from an endurance athlete standpoint, you know, you're, you are trying to peak at the right time every single year, right? You can't continue, you can't just continue to be at your best for a complete year. Right. So, and it was tough early on because we just got out of this training camp and it was just around this time around March that, okay, my numbers were improving week over week. I was doing really well. I was feeling really fit and I was very optimistic that I was going to make the team just because of the performance that I started to see in March. So that was tough. Um, but again, I just look back and I say, okay, just finish out this cycle. You'll go through, you'll ramp down and then just start ramping back up again whenever it's going to, you know, really take place. That's going to be in 2021. And something that I think, you know, I'm very curious about and, you know, I'm sure the audience is as well, making it to Tokyo, if you qualify, what, what would that mean to you? And as a Paralympian coming to this sport later in life, you know, having other defining events in your life that kind of brought you here, how, how is a Paralympian's journey or competition like very different than, you know, what you would project an Olympian's journey to be? And I think, you know, it's, it's so easy to see what there is in common, pushing your body to the limit, dealing with incredible like nerves and pressure, the incredible opportunity to represent your country on a world stage. You know, there's just such a magic to it. But I think it's also interesting to understand how it's different. And um, I, I would love to hear what you think about that. Yeah, I, I think you hit it around the head that there, there are so many similarities between Paralympians and Olympians. And I think that really opened my eyes up when I was at the training center Right. So I was training along, I was training alongside Olympians. I got to train alongside, you know, NFL players from the Los Angeles Rams, all sorts of things. Right. So just to see how an elite athlete prepares and, you know, works out and truly what their day looks like. And it is very similar. Right. I mean, to be at that elite, you know, echelon of, of performance, um, you know, there are a lot of similarities from, from a training perspective, but the, the, the difference that I see, and I don't think a lot of other people see, is just like how you get to that starting line, um, you know, whatever it may be for a race or for a particular day, just all of the, the challenges and really the adaptations that you have to make each day just in order to perform your sport, right? So if I were to go into the gym in order to do a bench press, the way that I get onto the bench, the way that I strap myself to the bench so I don't fall off in order to perform a lift, is different than someone that is fully able body. They can just hop down and then lift and then move on to the next movement, right? So there are just additional stresses, I think, and I would say almost like creative techniques in order to perform at your best um, that some some other people don't have to worry about, right? So there are just a little bit of differences there, but overall, I, I think there are a lot of common themes between you know Olympians and Paralympians in order to get there. It, it, it's really just how you know, each, each individual gets to that starting line. Um, and, and then to, to your first point, if I, if I were to make the games, you know, I, I would be, I would be over the moon, but it's, it, it's, I've always been, you know, intrinsically motivated to, to really accomplish any goal that I've set, but, you know, having such a strong support system from my family, from, you know, my, my coworkers, from my friends to then, you know, staff and other athletes that I've met, it's almost like I don't want to let them down either. So some people maybe wouldn't want to look at it that way and be like, oh, I've just this, I'm carrying this burden that I don't want to let these people down. But I actually love it because it's another thing that every single day, it is in the back of my head that, you know, these, you know, for example, my work is allowing me to, you know, take time off to go to a race or my family's coming over to help me with, you know, X or Y, right? So I really take that to heart of, you know, I, I want to prove them right as, as, as well, right? Because they're, they're all, they, they've all been a part of this journey from the very beginning. And I, I'd like to see it follow through. That, that's a beautiful sentiment. And it just reminds me, uh, you know, we, we watch 
these athletes, these Olympians, these Paralympians, and it the weight is all on their shoulders in these moments. Um, but there's such a huge support team behind all like the trainers and physical therapists and doctors and friends that that were part of this journey. I want to kind of segue into a meeting that you had with the CEO of the USOPC, Sarah Hirschland, about Operation Gold, the Operation Gold Awards. And for people who don't know, um, if you could explain what that is and then just how that meeting came about. Um, And I understand there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in the area, but how did you get involved and and, uh, what is that? Yeah, and that was one of the greatest things about being at the training center. So I lived there for essentially three years uh, from 2017 up until 2020. And I, I tried to just get involved in really anything that I possibly could there, whether it was out in the community or, you know, helping to represent Team USA, being a, a new athlete and then kind of seeing how the process works and trying to share all the experience that, that I had at the training center with, you know, new people that were coming in. Um, and, and one of those new people that came in was Sarah and she had opened her arms up. She wanted to learn how the athletes were, you know, utilizing the training center, how they were, you know, being supported by team USA, really everything. So myself and Kara Winger, um, um, another athlete had an opportunity to go to breakfast with her early on one of her, one of her first days on the job, uh, and really get to know her. And at this time, you know, Sarah was instrumental in, in a lot of big changes that that needed to happen and and that that actually did happen so it was it was really exciting to see all the changes that she brought in to try to you know bring more equality to olympians and paralympians so as when i was there she you know not only had the had the name change go on from the olympic training center to the olympic and paralympic training center same with the olympic and paralympic committee um, which was which was really exciting from a you know a brand awareness and an equality standpoint. But one of the biggest you know challenges early on was you know how do Paralympians you know and Olympians right how do they how do they finance themselves in order to go after this goal? Um, and at that time, leading up to 2016, really up to 2018 with the Winter Games, um, Paralympians weren't. Uh, rewarded the same amount for a medal at a games, uh, and it was significantly lower. Uh, so you you know you put yourself through four years of training. A lot of the equipment that a Paralympian has to has to you know collect is a it's not covered by insurance. It's extremely expensive, uh, and then on top of all of the other training costs in order to in order to be able to compete in your sport was was tough. So um, Sarah came in, and then they had. Uh, um, you know, fortunately enough, pushed through Operation Gold to equal the pay from a Olympic medal was the same as a Paralympic medal. So that happened early on in her uh, in her tenure, and and she's done a lot to to really bring you know all of Team USA together. I, I think that's really what I've what I've seen her her biggest message to really be you know one Team USA. So um, I had a great opportunity to to connect with her early on and have had actually many other opportunities to connect with her later. So we really developed a great friendship. And what would you say, like, what would you still like to see happen um, in, in terms of equality? Yeah. I think the biggest thing for me is it's, it's really from an awareness and an education standpoint. So, you know, people still aren't truly familiar with what the Paralympics are um, and, you know, what they have to provide. So when, you know, when the Olympics are on, that's a, a huge event that, you know, really the whole world comes together and, you know, they sit around their TV and they're watching the Olympics. It's a huge thing. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the Paralympic Games don't get uh, as much exposure as the Olympics do. They, they have been improving over the past few games, but it, it's still not quite there um, as the way it really as the way it should and really as the way that it can be. Um, and really I've, I've, I've seen a lot of other countries, you know, do this better than we have. Right. So when, when we go to these races internationally, I look at Italy for an example, um, the, the, the course is completely full, you know, I mean, they're, they are so engaged and so, so into the races. Um, and, and I don't know if that's just a culture thing or, um, you know, how they are kind of blending both the Olympics and Paralympics together, but, uh, I definitely think there's an opportunity for for more exposure, more awareness, and um, I'll, I'll leave it up to Sarah. I, I, I believe that she'll be able to do it. 
Well, it's nice to see that you're a part of the process of getting, you know, getting it underway. I want to transition, you know, sports obviously have played such a huge role in your life. You've always been active and you've played a number of different sports. What would you say, what advice would you give to someone perhaps that hasn't found such meaning in in sports and perhaps someone that might um, have gone through some uh, similar event or kind of lost full mobility of their body in the way that you did. And, and sports have never been a resource for them or a source of inspiration. And do you have other things in your life that you turn to outside of sports? Or I, I'd be very curious um, what advice you could give to maybe someone who went through something similar but, but wasn't active. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think you have to really be truly involved in sport. I think it's really just around the message of trying to find something that you're passionate about, and and ultimately trying to find your purpose, right? So coming out of this you know, deep and dark time, I, I I turned to sport, but I also turned to my job. I turned to my family. I really became very close with my family. That I was always close with them, but uh, fully, I think, appreciate you know how much they they did for me early on, and and really still do. Um, but you know, for me, the outlet was sport. I needed something just to stay busy and to, you know, keep my mind moving. So I wasn't, you know, kind of digressing or, or thinking any of those negative thoughts. So my, my approach was, I'm just going to stay as busy as possible. And to your quote before is I just didn't have enough time for any of the negative thoughts. And that was the way that I decided to, you know, push through this, this life altering event and kind of come through over any type of adversity. So I, I think you could take that message with really anything. It doesn't have to be a sport. It's, it's just opening up and trying different things. Um, and for me, I found a lot of success of by, by taking these risks, I moved out to San Diego. If I didn't do that, I was just a year into, you know, being laid up in a hospital bed paralyzed. And I lived out in San Diego on my own and moved across the country. And that really opened up a door for me to, find this, right? So it, it's not really having to figure out, okay, this is what's going to, you know, get me out of the house, right? It's just taking these different chances and trying to look at every opportunity kind of as an experience um, is you, you, you really don't know what you're going to find, right? And I, I think that's the biggest message is continue to take those risks, um, you know, really become comfortable in, in any uncomfortable situation. And you're really going to find some great opportunities that are going to really open up some doors for you. When I when I speak with you, I get this beautiful blend of someone that's found deep a deep sense of appreciation and gratitude and yet still can hold this competitive drive and have this space for risk. And certainly your life circumstances have helped shape that, but has has there been any person in your life or any book that you've read, you know, over the last decade that you think has also really kind of shaped the person you are today? I don't know. I mean, as I mentioned before, I mean, my, my family and my mom played such an instrumental role for, for the way that I am and kind of think, I think the way that I act. But um, I've, I've just always kind of looked at myself as uh, just try to be a realist. I mean, I've everything that I've kind of, I'm never too high or never too low, but um, that competitive edge is just kind of always there, right? But I'm a realist, right? I try to set very lofty goals, but that are obtainable. Um, so I think that's what's always continued to, to push me. But I, I can't really ever like point it back to one specific book or one specific person that's, you know, maybe, maybe changed me. I think it's just a lot of the different experiences that I had early on is kind of what shifted me. And um, it, it truly was because I, I found something that I was passionate about. Like I'm excited getting up at four 30 in the morning. I'm excited to get on the bike, even if it's that early. So, um, I, I am just grateful for the opportunity that I get to do it. Um, and it's just been really neat to see, you know, all of the progress and, and really, you know, truly just find out, you know, what, what, what really is my potential? Um, I don't know. And I'm interested in trying to find that out. Well, I think we're all excited to to find that out and, you know, hopefully root for you and in Tokyo. And I want to close with with one last question uh, that I ask all my guests. And it would be, what is your Olympic or Paralympic moment in life? And it can be, you know, just something that's 
that's seminal, that changed how you looked at the world or something that you've been looking forward to your whole life or kind of this just moment where things pause and and um, you just have this sense of perspective. You know, for some people, it's like when they got married or met the love of their life or, you know, it, could, it really could be anything. Yeah, when I, when I look at it, it's tough not to go back to obviously the, the injury itself. And the reason why I say it is because it was, it, it, it's so weird how everything comes, you know, full circle. So like this date of May 24th has continued to pop up into my life. So I was injured on May 24th, 2014. Then on May 24th, 2017, three years after that date was the first day that I moved into the training center and really came on this journey. And three years after that, almost to the day, it was like May 25th, is when I moved out of the training center and bought my first home. Um, so we'll see what happens, you know, at next May. But um, th- that that date keeps kind of coming around. But uh, from from a moment of like perspective and and, and really a, a change in my life was it 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 honestly was that one interaction that I had, you know, with that young woman that really opened me up to perspective and really opened me up to, to gratitude because at that time, you know, there were a lot of dark times of, Oh my gosh, like everything that I'm doing, it, it's taking so long and, I, and I'm so dependent on people. And it was, it would have been easy just to, to give up. But when I, you know, had that interaction with her early on, it was like that aha moment of, Oh my gosh, you should be grateful for what you have. You're, a, you're still here, you're completely independent, and she would wish, like she would give everything that she had to be in your shoes. Um, so that was a huge moment for me, and it, it's really helped my perspective anytime I'm going through some type of adversity of, if I just step back and, you know, we're going we're gonna to really get through this. Well, that, that's a beautiful answer, and thank you so much for taking the time to to come on and chat today. I know I've gotten so much from this, and the audience uh, certainly will as well. Um, you're very inspirational, and we're wishing you the best of luck going into the trials and, and training. So thank you for coming. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City. 